All right, we've got kind of a lot to get through. Out of curiosity, how long are your episode notes? I know I should know this because I post them to the Patreon, but I just usually hit Command A and just copy. <laughs> you mean in general? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it depends on the. I mean, like a really dense episode notes is going to be like fifteen pages, something crazy like that. Okay, cool. I'm at seventeen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a lot. (laughs) But here's how this is going to work. So today we're talking about Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. It is a really long book. My first draft of this, which I will also post for the Patreon, which goes chapter by chapter, that was like 30 pages. And I was like, this is bonkers bananas. I can't do this. Let me make a new version. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this is version two, which I will also post if you want the, the TLDR. And it's still kind of kind of L. (laughs) (laughs) But I will basically be taking us through this. I'm not going to go into every single example of things. I have them here written in case I need them. But if you're ever like, ooh, that sounds particularly interesting and or nasty, tell me more. I've probably got a story for it. So just like flag me down. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, cool. So we're probably not going to get into all 17 pages of it, but... Let's get going. (laughs) All right. Quick note at the top. This was published in 2018, and I only mention that because it's 2023. So whatever nasty shit they're doing here, just know it's probably gotten nastier. Like, no one's gotten better at this kind of stuff. So (laughs) You you don't don't think they've cleaned up their act since then? That they've really turned a new leaf and said, maybe we shouldn't spy on everything that everyone's doing all the time. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure they have made many press releases that kind of pretend they're going to do those things, but they, I don't think they've actually done anything. (laughs) Okay. So we start way back in the year 2000 at Georgia tech and they had a project called the aware home. And this was to create a quote living laboratory for studying what's called ubiquitous computing, which we'll get back to in a little bit. Basically, they're using sensors and wearable tech to study like the interaction of humans and objects in a home. The reason, you know, she starts with this story and the reason I also want to start with it is because it shows how much the landscape has changed. Because back then, privacy requirements were almost taken for granted. It was assumed that the rights to all this data would belong to the occupants of the home. And it was in a closed loop system, you know, it was just just the homeowners and just the, you know, the people staying there and just the, the researchers and like, that's it, right? Yeah. Like common sense people would assume. Yeah, exactly. And you'll see this over and over again. in so many of the concepts, often like very well-meaning scientists will make something and be like, this could be great for, you know, helping kids read or whatever it is, yeah. you know, and then like big tech takes it and goes like, oh, I know how to make money off of this. Right. (laughs) So, and, you know, compare that to today's Nest system, which is now owned by Google, the smart home system. Uh, It's linked to tons of connected products and entering the Nest system would require you to read just about a thousand contracts. And if you want to say no to any one of those 1000 contracts, you basically just don't get a system that works. (laughs) You won't get any updates, which can result in, you know, frozen pipes, failed smoke alarms, you know, someone hacking into your home security. Essentially, the functionality of a product is held hostage for your data. And we'll see this trend over and over as well. Well, luckily, 
you know, I have at my disposal a team of lawyers who was able to <laughs> pour through. through all the papers. So <laughs> I've accepted the, you know, Google Google Home <laughs> system thermostat thing, and it works mm-hmm. fine for me. It's great. But that's only because I was able to, re- you know, read all those things with my fleet of lawyers. Yeah, and they live with you, too, so that helps a lot. They yeah. get to enjoy the nest. Yeah, it's super easy. <laughs> so these two stories really illustrate the, the change in the industry over, you know, just 20 years or so. And and you may ask, how did we get here? Why did we get here? And the short answer is profit. <laughs> Whoa, weird. How that guy Who keeps popping up. Who would have guessed? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, important to note, the book is not, you know, anti-technology, not Luddite in the bad sense of the word. It's going after the people behind the curtain and not, you know, the technology itself. Some historical context for kind of the age of the early internet. Basically, uh, the author posits that it came at a really, really good time in in the sense of what people were craving. Uh, I've talked before on the show about the idea of the, the first and second modernity, Uh, So I'll only quickly touch on this now, but it's the idea of the first thing you have to tackle is like, I need to live, I need to survive. Mm -hmm. And the second thing you need to tackle is, who am I? What am I doing here? (laughs) Essentially Maslow's hierarchy, but in like a population scale. And the internet came around as we were asking these big questions and we were trying to like be individuals and, you know, connect with people. And the internet was a great platform for that at first, you know, think of all the early forum days and stuff like that. But around the corner lurks our old, quote-unquote, friend, neoliberalism. Mmm, that guy. Great guy. <laughs> Always Love looking to make a guy. buck. <laughs> yes. They were so scared of any idea of collectivism, whether that was from communism or, you know, less savory methods in the post-war society, they were like, free market, free market, free market. (laughs) So they freaked out, gutted a bunch of social programs, cut regulations. And now you had your little second modernity of who am I? What am I trying to do here on this planet? Combined with how am I going to pay rent? (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of people were feeling the pinch. Uh, You have a huge amount of social division, poverty, food insecurity, anti-democracy. And this is when tech kind of, this is the world that they are entering. Uh, and Apple in particular, uh, the, it was called the, the Apple miracle because they were able to latch on to a customer base so quickly and without much overhead. Basically they saw that need for individuality that you saw in like kind of Gen X that were, you know, they wanted to be defined by what they liked and everything, but they wanted it at an affordable price. And so they cut out the middleman of CDs and they got into iTunes. And you may think, okay, great. Wow. Thanks, Apple. But like the real cost is is behind the cool music <laughs> because the real cost is data. Okay. So when you're making that argument, are you saying that Apple and other tech companies like it knew the bargain or did they maybe figure out the bargain on the way? A lot of them figured it out on the way. Google is an example that we'll get into that was very much a starting out with good intentions and then the needs of capitalism pressed in on them. Don't do evil, I think, was their famous catchphrase or something, right? Which was retracted later. (laughs) They retired it, I think, last year. (laughs) Sometimes you got got to do a little bit evil. (laughs) To, you know, achieve your totally non-evil goals. (laughs) So this is where we get to the theory portion. 
this book is big on theory. And I understand why, because there are so many examples in here, which is really great. But like I said at the top, this is a obviously quick changing industry. So it's really good to ground yourself into the, the theory of it, which is, long story short, surveillance capitalism wants your data. On a surface level, they will say, well, this is so we can make things better. We're making things more convenient. We're making things, you know, we're learning, we're growing, whatever. And we, we all, you all have experience with that direct language because that's what they say. They'll yes. say, will you allow access for this app? This is so that we can improve your experience. This is so mm -hmm. that we can fix bugs and make things run smoother for you. Yes, it is all couched in a, hey, look how nice we're being kind of language. The reality is what they do is they take your data and they create what's called behavioral surplus. And this creates prediction products in the behavioral futures markets. Now, Zuboff loves a vocab term. She throws out a lot of them, so it can get kind of confusing. By the end of the book, you're like translating almost. But basically, when you interact with a service, you end up giving them lots of extra data. We'll get into the specifics of that later. But the companies then sell that data, depending on their business model, they either sell the data directly or sell the predictions they have made using that data to marketing people to other businesses so they can sell you things. So the kind of metaphor, you know, that the book gives is if traditional capitalism is a vampire feeding off of labor, surveillance <laughs> capitalism is feeding off of the human experience. <laughs> Damn. So, I mean, Marx essentially portrays capital as a sort of necrotic, this necromancy sort of, you know, feeding on the vampiric imagery. I mean, mm -hmm. it, from, you know, there's the specter hunting Europe, the specter of communism. I mean, like, there's this gothic imagery throughout of, like, the dead weighing upon the living. But what you're saying is, with here, here you're transitioning beyond that to, like, a, like a succubus or something. Like, it's feeding on, feeding on your spiritual energy, even. I think so. And, and <laughs> given the breadth and the depth of the kinds of data they can get about you, like, the specificity of it, it gets real fucking creepy. And honestly, this book gets to some really terrifying like philosophical ends to these kinds of means of like what does it mean when they have that much insight into us and kind of control of us what do you think about and maybe we'll get into this later but like what do you think about how we should respond because like a lot of times when i'm asked this question i'm like dude my fucking food order app mm -hmm. i don't care bro like <laughs> tell that tell that to the FBI, tell it to CIA, tell that to Mossad, whoever you want to tell that to. It don't matter. I'm going to order food. It, it, you know, like why? And, and maybe we'll get into it. But what ways should people care about that? Or what's the more sinister application of that? Maybe. So there's lots of sinister applications, which we'll get into for sure. What I would say is I do think this book does a good job of saying like, yeah, on an individual level, this is going to be impossible to navigate and like kind of almost discourages that tack of, okay, how can I as an individual fix my privacy? Cause she's like, that's not the problem here. The problem is the system underneath it. Like, mm -hmm. good job. You saved yourself. Like what about everybody else? You know? Yeah. Cause currently you can say, no, you can't do that to me. And a lot of products it will be fine. They'll be like, okay, well, can't drink, you know. And <laughs> but, but isn't that only because the vast majority of people say yes? Like, a lot of these enterprises would be like, okay, fine, 
75% of people are telling us, no, we're going to have to shut this down because it sucks because we don't get the data. We can't sell. We can't make the money. So, yeah, a lot of times companies have quick setup kind of options, which basically are just like you give them all the data Mm -hmm. and like the stats at the time in this book were somewhere around like 75% of people just do the quick setup in, in most apps and they just agree to everything. And again, it's because they're being told, hey, this is good for you. So, yeah. and like most people don't like stop and like, you know, read through all the kinds of things they can do with that information or they don't know what all they can do with that information, which we will tell you. <laughs> and a lot of times I think the pod is basically sweetened. I mean, it's like, you want to be able to like log into this easily with your phone? You want it to be able mm-hmm. to like connect with your other fucking apps and, and everything else? I mean, like, do you want this to seamlessly integrate with your life or do you want to be, you know, a bitch ass and say <laughs> no? And I mean, then you got to log in every time. You got to type in a bunch of shit. You got to, we got to send you a passcode and all this stuff. Or do you want to like be cool? <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, that's what it comes down to is, is we are being sold this, this bill of, you know, this is very convenient and you got to live in the future, man. Like, you know, the language around this is often like, just get over it, you know? <laughs> and in defense of the bad guys, it is super convenient. If you just like it sign totally off on it, convenient. it's yeah. like really convenient. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I haven't gone, I think connected home is probably where I draw the line. I don't super want that going on in my house. Like I don't, I don't really want a, you know, an Amazon I'm not going to say the name in case it triggers your your speaker, but you know that, <laughs> okay, that lady. In. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that lady talking to me in my house. Alexa, play the international. <laughs> Every listener's just like, hell yeah. Alexa, pause. Alexa, pause. <laughs> that didn't work very well. <laughs> oh wow. But yeah, I mean, everyone has their own personal lines they're going to draw here, and I think the point of this book is like, do whatever you want to do on that, but like. The issue is the system underneath it, which is capitalism. I yeah. mean, like she says that explicitly at some point, like that's the real bad guy here, you know? Exactly. And it's, you know, when we get into topics of, you know, environmentalism and veganism and uh, fast fashion, and anything else that you have a potential consumer action, the consumer action is fine for your own personal soul and probably important in that way. But the mass action of, how can this be allowed to happen is the bigger question. And, and it does get into that towards the end of, of like, what what are people doing in response to this kind of, you know, abuse? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, she doesn't have any, I would say she doesn't have any, like, here's the solution, because she is, this book really is a project of analyzing and, and recounting the problem. And, you know, she's very much of the mind of like, well, if we're going to stop this thing, like we have to understand it. So I'm going to try to nail down some main points. One of those points is you might've heard this phrase around, but if the phrase, if it's free, then you're the product. Yeah. You ever heard of that? Yeah. I've heard this. She says, we're more like the raw material. <laughs> we're not really the product. I mean, kind of like the stuff they get out of us is the product. And the actual customers are the advertisers that want this data. (laughs) What we produce or whatever that is the product that they want to sell are our buying habits. We are just kind of like toiling in the mines and the mines are us buying shit. Yeah, yeah. It's a little Matrix-like in that way of we are hooked up to machines that, that mine us for things. Yeah, that sounds, um, that sounds fine. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. So let's get into a little brief history of Google 
It's 1998. You're fucking listening to Smash Mouth or whatever. You do a Google. You say, man, what are these Smash Mouth lyrics? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you Google that. And originally, they really didn't do anything with this data. It just likes out there, like not a big deal. Eventually, a developer begins peeking in at the info, and they begin using that info. Uh, They look at the keyword, but also how many searches you tried, how it's phrased, how it's spelled, punctuation, your click patterns, uh, the dwell times on a page, so how long you spent somewhere, and also your location. And uh, this is called like data exhaust. This is all just extra info that you didn't really mean to give somebody, but you did give somebody. And they use this info originally to feed back into their search engine to create an improved search experience. And it was really good. Yeah, that's why Google became the search engine, because it fed on that. Absolutely. And other companies weren't doing this yet. So like it was a breakthrough. It was like the number one search engine. I mean, I'm sure obviously still is, but like this was a, a giant shift in how people approached it. And it was a very much a symbiotic relationship at this time. Like there's a little diagram in the book um, of like kind of a wheel that goes around based on this kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. So if you are an old head, I mean, you, you miss the days of ask Jeeves. This is why you can no longer <laughs> ask Jeeves it's because of Google. Yeah. Yeah. I hear DuckDuckGo is a good alternative. They're a lot more privacy minded. It's supposed but... to be secretive or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Secretive. <laughs> oh no i'm always like i ain't spying i, I ain't doing spy shit so I'm good. i know i know me too but anyway yeah so this was a major change you know initially google's revenues are based on licensing deals to web portals and they get a little bit from sponsored ads linked to, to keywords um but they're they're very different in using this data and eventually using it to monetize because other search engines at the time are doing things like auctioning off like top search results. Like, do you want to be the top, you know, exterminator result? Pay us, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and the the founders were like, we're not going to do that. That That's like really shitty. And like, they were super against that. Mm-hmm. But then the dot-com bubble hits in 2000. And oh. Google's like, fuck, where's the money? <laughs> so, I mean, I, so I think we have a divide. I mean, I think a lot of our listeners remember that. I think we ourselves don't very much because we were like, 10 or like seven mm-hmm. I mean, like, <laughs> not um, old we, that happened we were there but and then all of our listeners are younger than us they don't remember this fucking at all yeah do you want to give us a, a brief intro so i would give you more of a brief analogy if you mm. were around in like not this past year i think but i think it was the year before that during the super bowl then I forget really which one it was. If it was the, the most recent one or the one before, I think it was the one before that, but the crypto bowl, basically, when all of the advertisements were about cryptocurrencies. I want to say that was two years ago, because I think last year all of them were about AI. Yeah, I think last year it was, yeah, it was crypto. It, everyone was saying, buy this crypto, do this, you know, during the dot-com bubble, it was the same thing, but about websites. There was a pets.com Mm, that's a big a famous ad one. for them and every, and all that and every it was just like can this potentially be websited can can we put dot com on the end of it? that's why it's called the dot com boom regardless of whether there's a huge desire for people to do this on the web because nowadays we think of everything as like 
yeah, people want to do that on the web because <laughs> they don't have to go do it themselves. I mean, it's obvious, but back then it wasn't as obvious. It was like, you didn't have instant shipping. You didn't have ubiquity. You didn't have uh, smartphones in everybody's hand. You would have to mm-hmm. go to a computer. Uh, you didn't have smartphones in general, I guess, at the time. Uh, Not really, no. So there were there was just like a lot more chasing of people's desires than there really were people's people's desires for the thing (laughs) and the infrastructure for that was just not set up yet like you mentioned the shipping like that was just not a thing if you ordered something online it was going to take weeks to arrive you Mm -hmm. know you can order food online very easily like all kinds of stuff just wasn't set up for that and so what you could do on it was so limited that i think a lot of businesses couldn't find a way to make money from it exactly that's a, a great thing to bring in is food DoorDash, Uber Eats, all this stuff was not a thing. Like the best food delivery you could get was your pizza place, your Chinese place, (laughs) local. Call them. They send a guy. That's it. There's no website for this. Like we are second tier. uh, So us millennials and younger people, we were second tier citizens in that world because like (laughs) we all have anxiety about contacting people directly about this shit. That's what you had to do in the in the Gen X and the boomer (laughs) world that they had built. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, there's so many times I'm like, I that involves a phone call. No, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah, absolutely not. So, and and the dot com thing was essentially the same thing that we saw in the Great Recession, in the crypto boom, and everything was people chasing castles in the sky. People chasing, yeah, speculating of just like, oh, this is going to go nowhere but up. Like, this is the next big thing. It's super <laughs> cool. It's going to make me a lot of money. You're a chump if you don't get in now. They did that back then. And guess what? They did that back in 1929. They mm-hmm. did that repeatedly throughout the history of the stock market. It's because capital and the stock market are really always trying to part a fool with his money is they're just trying to rip people off. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a gambling machine. Okay, so you're in that environment. Your your venture capitalists who have invested all this money are like, hey, your little search engine's cute and all, but like, where's my fucking money? <laughs> <laughs> and so they pivot. They hire CEO Eric Schmidt, and they start learning how to use their data for money. And what they're able to figure out is that they can measure what's called the click through rate. If you're in marketing in some way, you've probably heard of this term. It's how often users actually click on an ad. Um, And that's often how, as a designer, your stuff is rated of like, oh, we got a good click-through rate on this. It must have been good. So cool. Cool way to judge things. (laughs) It's a suckers per minute sort of measure. Mm -hmm. Basically. (laughs) How many people did you somehow trick into clicking this thing? Good job. So it's like the leaderboard. So, you know, you go to like the state fair or something, the the carnival barkers like it's a leaderboard for those guys <laughs> step right up there you go you know the, their click-through rate is just how many people they got to go up there and throw a ball at the milk cartons <laughs> i mean essentially yeah i mean <laughs> it, it's rating their success of an advertisement and it was really revolutionary because it was turning this like super you know we think of the madman era of advertising as yeah. this artistic kind of esoteric guessing game this represents the american spirit of manhood it's <laughs> it's the great frontier it's uh it's bravery it's yeah don okay you're three martinis deep we get it fine whatever we're doing <laughs> sure it. we're going with your pitch 
<laughs> Very manly cigarettes you've sold us. But yeah, it was taking, it was moving away from all those like kind of Mad Men style advertising cliches and turning it into math, turning it into metrics, turning it into measurable results. And people went fucking nuts over this. And and Google really leaned in. They started creating something called user profile information or UPI for each user. For instance, they can choose to show an ad for prostate cancer screening only to males who are 45 years old and older. That's, I mean, that's a fairly benign application a, of it. I know that's a really nice one. It's like, yeah, <laughs> fuck, I don't, I don't need to I see guess, that. thanks for reminding me. <laughs> yeah. They can also create association graphs to reveal user relationships. That's fucking weird. And basically they can get, you know, really granular data on you. Everything from age, you know, sex assigned at birth, location. Um, But we'll see this data gets more and more detailed as companies grow. So back in another history lesson for you youngins, we used to call that age, sex, sex assigned at birth and location as ASL. Oh, is that what in in the chats is? in in, in oh. your Yahoo chat and your AOL chat or whatever back when you had okay. the chat rooms, people would be like, "Hey, hey, what's up?" Blah blah blah. ASL, and you would be like, <laughs> "Age, sex, location." This is just so you can chat with randos. Yeah, and I never did that. You were always allowed to just make it up, I guess. Oh, totally. Um, and presumably a lot everyone did i don't i don't know i, I, was, I was a fairly so. honest purveyor of this i would just <laughs> say it but yeah that's crazy i never yeah. did that i only chatted with people that i i knew so <laughs> no yeah you you could you could just do that with random people on the internet wow a totally safe world that we built <laughs> totally fine don't worry about it anyway <laughs> So yeah, you're getting all this information. Some of it is freely given. You know, you sign up for a thing, you you put in some info. A lot of it isn't. In fact, in interviews with developers, a lot of times they will prefer to get data themselves because they might think that they're not being honest or that the information becomes out of date. Maybe you move, maybe something about you changes. All in all, they want as much data as possible because more data is better predictions, which is more click-throughs, which is more revenue. So you mentioned earlier that Google was sort of on the pioneering end of this, but how quickly, so I assume Google had kind of a head start. Maybe they were the pioneers, but how quickly did this catch on industry-wide? Like how quickly was everyone fucking doing this? I mean, pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, Facebook is another early adopter for sure. I don't know if you recall uh, the program called Beacon. Not in particular. It was very, very ominously named. Uh, I think this was in 2007. And this was basically a program that enabled their advertisers to track users across the internet Mm. and would disclose their purchases to their friend networks without their permission. One guy got his like surprise proposal ruined. Damn. (laughs) And doesn't matter if you're logged in or not. And yeah, it was really scandalous. People were like, fuck that and like got really mad. And so they actually did get that one shut down but even so like zuckerberg was like you guys are just freaking out for no reason like like privacy's so over i was just trying to help you like <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> i was trying mm-hmm. to sell you better products that you really want 
Yes, yeah. So it catches on pretty quickly. I mean, that's from 2007. We're looking at, let's see, 2004, Google is is raking in with a million dollars a day in their AdSense department. And, and it's up to 10 billion by 2010. So it really takes off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's widespread in that regard. It is, it is. And, and, you know, we'll get to many, many more examples. But you may be asking... How did they get away with this? You know, what about privacy? What What is going on here? Sure. Yeah. Someone's got to ask at some point, how come they've got this profile of me? How come I'm getting my proposals ruined? Or whatever, <laughs> right? People have to be up in arms in some way. Yeah. And, and a lot of it, I think, gets curtailed by language. Uh, you know, Google and a lot of tech companies call this stuff digital exhaust or digital breadcrumbs. Makes it sound like leftover trash nobody wants. Yeah. Like, oh, this is just trash I'm picking up for you, my friend. Yeah, also, you're kind of being rude for just leaving this all over the place. Like, if you <laughs> would clean you up eat after yourself. over a napkin, please? Yeah, <laughs> you fucking slobs. Like, come on. Do you do the super Mexican thing of eating over the sink when your house is clean because you don't want to get it dirty? Because I definitely do. <laughs> I've never done this. I, I do it, especially if I'm eating like something crumbly. No, I mean, I will get a plate. I will put it I, I just, <laughs> or something. Napkin is the worst I'll do. Never the, mm-hmm. never the sink. This is, this is beneath me. <laughs> I've become a freak. Uh, anyway, so they're taking all this, this, you know, fucking trash that you left out. Way to go. Yeah. They're taking that. And they're, they're claiming a lot of tech companies, Google itself, will claim not to sell personal data. Like, oh, no, no, we never sell your data. So they don't... Uh, it's been a long time since I've heard that claim, but there was a time when people were claiming this left, right, and center is, we never, we're, we have no. integrity, we never really? sell your personal data. No. <laughs> I think that this has fallen out of vogue, I don't know, but like. I think so, because I think it's expected that they do now at this point. Like, legally, it's probably not <laughs> acceptable to do anymore. But Well, it's technically true for them to say that in most cases because google will not sell maybe the raw material but they'll sell the predictions that they garner from the data this is what people call metadata yes okay um they are getting the the conclusions from it that's what they're going to sell they can find third parties who want that and then the whole idea of third parties a lot of times when you sign these kinds of like terms of service agreements you are also signing on behalf of a third party company that you don't know. Basically, they're like, hey, we're gonna take your data. We're also gonna share it with like a bunch of other guys and they have their own laws and rules around it. I can't really control what they do. Also yeah. by signing this, you're okay with that. <laughs> yeah. That's again where my, you know, copious team of lawyers came together and said, that's gonna be okay, man. You just do it, it's fine. We'll just research into that, it'll be okay. Yeah, and I said, I'm your, you know, humble neighborhood communists it's fine with me you know i'll i'll sell it to them what 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 harm could come to me of that you know fucking joe mccarthy would have had himself a field day all he had to be his Oof. his like past incarnation or future incarnation however you think of time and it's like cyclical or non-cyclical <laughs> you know nature is in another life he was like a data analyst at one of these places oh yeah you know and he would have oh, yeah. had, instead of waving around blank pieces of paper and saying, I've got all the names, is he would have literally had everybody's metadata and really known who the fuck was a communist and who wasn't. Yeah. I mean, the <laughs> amount of shit they can get from you and the amount that the government and the military is involved in it, 
Oh, yeah. Our man would have been super happy. <laughs> so there's another a little personal quirk. Our dad likes to make a joke that anytime a pub, if a public official were to go, were, were, to, were to go unceremoniously via a high power <laughs> rifle or something to that effect, that he would be under investigation as a former military member and mm-hmm. <laughs> things, things like that. And more recently, our own. You know, political convictions, he's like, yeah, and you guys being like. <laughs> <laughs> We're added to the list. Yeah, and it's like, well, you're not wrong, really. You're really <laughs> not metadata wrong. Metadata-wise, he's, he's not, he might not have that sophisticated understanding of it, but like meta, metadata-wise, yeah, like. They, they can get, yeah, they can and they will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Terms of service, we already talked about, they start to get real nasty. You know, they become like these take it or leave it kinds of options and allow for infinite changes without the user's knowledge. And people are starting to fight back. In uh, 2011, the Spanish Data Protection Agency uh, brought forth the claim of 90 citizens seeking the right to be forgotten against Google. Do you remember this? Yes, I've heard of this. Yeah. So this was a group of people who, for different reasons, uh, someone was trying to like, escape an abusive husband. Uh, Someone was trying to get rid of an old arrest record because they're like a real estate person or they had some sort of Mm -hmm. small business. I don't remember what it was. Um, Someone had a home foreclosure, all the stuff that was really damaging, you know, their reputation or their like physical fucking safety. Mm -hmm. And the agency ruled that although they couldn't ask the original source material to scrub its content. So, you know, the jail or whoever, It claimed that Google had the responsibility to respond to those requests to remove links uh, because they are the one who decided let's index all the fucking information and not ask anybody how they feel about that. Okay, yeah. Uh, Surprisingly, the court of justice ruled in favor of these uh, plaintiffs and uh, the right to be forgotten is in EU law as of May 2014. Google's fucking pissed about this. (laughs) (laughs) Co-founder Larry Page said... In general, having the data present in companies like Google is better than having it in the government with no due process to get that data because we obviously care about our reputation. I'm not sure the government cares about that as much. So just give everything to Google. They'll be fine. It's cool. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. And of course, as we all know, the government, like, which is just the ubiquitous thing. I mean, the government, that's the same throughout the world. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's all the government. <laughs> and they're all bad. Uh, yeah. The, I'm trying to look into the International Court of Justice, seeing if the United States is technically even. Oh, yeah, sorry. Here, <clears throat> tie into previous episode. The court's workload covers a wide range of judicial activity after the court ruled that the United States' covert war against Nicaragua was a violation of international <laughs> law in Nicaragua versus the United States. The United States withdrew from compulsory jurisdiction in 1986 to, Jesus. to accept the court's jurisdiction only on a discretionary basis. So we just said, no, the laws don't apply to me. <laughs> the laws only apply if I want them to. I mean, like, imagine I'm, I'm like telling a kid, hey. You can't slap people in the face in my class. And he's like, hold on, hold on. Like, I don't like that law. I'm, I, yeah, that, that law sucks. Okay. Some of your laws are okay, man. Like they're, they're fine. I'll follow those. But like the one about the slapping in the face, I'm going to slap people in the face. That's just what I do. So that's, that's my thing. And that's apparently what we do with the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. Wow. Cool move. 
I mean, we will see similar behavior among tech companies. If you don't <laughs> like the law, go somewhere else. And that's what they fucking did. <laughs> uh, brilliant move. I mean, honestly, they they are really learning how to work the system. Um, one of the things that helps them is they, they often have uh, kind of unusual structure of corporate governance. It's kind of confusing, but long story short, Google and Facebook and a lot of these companies uh, have it set up so that founders have like all of the power in, in shares and voting and stuff like that. Uh, so they can just move really quickly on things and just do whatever the fuck they want. They also started buying the shit up like crazy. Uh, Google buys YouTube, Facebook buys WhatsApp. Uh, all of these are adding not only, you know, these products and things that people want, but more importantly, a flow of information. More data. Yep. More, ch- more ways to suck up all the information you can. And then integrate it. Like, so you already have that, so, you know, that app. Yeah, this app. You want them to talk to each other. I mean, you want to be able to log in <laughs> through one single thing, right? So mm-hmm. here you go. And much in the way that imperialism allows countries to go pillage and break all kinds of laws in other countries, and you can just say, oh, the international court of justice doesn't apply to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, surveillance capitalism allows them to move forth in this unclaimed territory because our laws are so old that they don't cover. We didn't think to protect against this stuff, you know? That's true. I mean, these guys are so old that they barely remember, you know, what <laughs> day internet. it is, where I am, <laughs> things like this. Mm-hmm. You know, and ableist as that may be, I mean, most of these guys, seriously, they're they're they fucked up in their own way. Anymore. Yeah, like they're <laughs> agents. But like, yeah, it's it's just it's a gerontocracy in that way. Totally, neoliberalism is also to blame for this uh, because they were so obsessed about cutting out government and and gutting all regulation, you have a lot of bad results from that. You had people like uh, Frank Pascal, a legal scholar, claiming that privacy is a competitive good. If you don't like it, buy something else. And that users are clearly even con- giving consent because they're signing all these terms of service yeah. agreements. So it's fine. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, here's a parallel to that is when the, the sacred contract people come out of the woodwork and they say well do you want some union coming in between you and your sacred right to make a contract with your employer when you sign hundreds of bullshit contracts every day that you have no power in see i don't even mean that of like oh i just blindly signed that like what i mean is under what conditions did you sign this contract you signed this contract because the alternative was starving Yes. It's like yes. they don't like to admit. And it's, you know, un- so many different circumstances. I mean, you look in, in you know, the current in May, phew, a week from now we release this. Maybe conditions are different, but you've got all of Palestine with a gun to its head. You know, all, Gaza, West Bank, everything like, invasion. Here we are. We're going to invade you. Right. Uh, you're not free to do anything. Whatever you agree to at that point is under duress. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's- clearly not a fair discussion of power and like i think zubop does a good job of of showing that imbalance of power here too of we are not the things they're holding hostage are so basic to life at this point that it's unacceptable you know like you cannot navigate the world without the internet anymore like it's just not possible and they are like holding back important services for us and using that data in some really nasty ways. Exactly. And that's that falls just exactly in line 
with what Mark said about the basics of employment, of that Mm -hmm. starvation is a gun held to the head of the working class, that when we say, oh, people are free to enter into contracts and, you know, free to be laborers or not, they're not. They're actually forced by the compulsion of needing to eat and needing to provide a house for themselves and for their family. That it is slave labor and the, you know, uh, the terms of that are the wages. And not in such, perhaps such drastic of a way, but you cannot deny the fact that people are signing all sorts of things online to be able to work. I mean, to be able to go to work, to provide for themselves, to provide for their families, to get transportation, to get from place Mm -hmm. to place so that they can do that, like to, to, to sign up for a bank to, and get their paycheck put somewhere. Like there, there's all sorts of little things that you have to do. Essentially you have to agree to these terms again, so that you can, survive in a capitalist society it's not like that asshole that's like oh yeah you could just sign up somewhere else no you cannot you can't like yeah some of these things are luxuries but so many of them are just basic requirements for doing anything for applying for that precious job you want so much you have to do it online yeah uh you know because and hopefully you guys are experiencing this in a in a dwindling capacity but (laughs) When we were kids, and from yeah. my understanding, the current generation of kids, basically, you get the the boomers, the Gen Xers and stuff will tell you, well, you, what you need to do is you need to put on a suit, and you need to go in there, and you need to talk to the manager and ask to have a job application, and then they'll hire you on the spot. Because that's how their old ass mm-hmm. got a job back in before the fucking internet. <laughs> All right, but now, if you do that, they'll tell you, apply online. Yeah, like, thanks for wasting my time, jackass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hell, at least when I was a teenager, they were like, that's nice. Hey, we have an online application, but who are you? You know, and they would, like, write that down. It was, like, it was like half. Mm-hmm. It was, like, kind of good, I guess. But now it's just stupid. <laughs> and back to the job for survival thing. We have all taken a job that we did not want. I mean, technically, I don't want any job, but we've all <laughs> taken some like shittier jobs that we super didn't want just because like they were the ones that said yes. <laughs> yeah, it was a job. I was there. I needed a job. There we are. I needed to pay rent. <laughs> That's what I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, let's see. Ne- neoliberalism, of course, uh, taught us the great lesson that corporations are people now. So Yay. obviously they have free speech and property rights. And if you regulate this, that's not okay. You're impeding on my rights. Me, Mr. Google. So, <laughs> But let's get to something that really amped up the stakes, amped up the, the players involved. And that is 9-11. <laughs> uh, 9-11... Yeah, that's that's a pretty good description of it all around, all <laughs> across the board. It definitely amped things up, radically changed all the things. That's another one. I don't know. And, and so I guess I've been thinking about this lately just because I feel older by the day. <laughs> because we, we've done this show for a couple of years now. And I think both of us are kind of like, oh, it's neat that there are younger people that listen to this and stuff. But, you know, thinking about that and like teaching high school and stuff now is I think about it like, damn, like they have no concept of that. Like the kids that I'm teaching now, they're born 
um, like the year I graduated high school. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> that's insane. They were, they were, they were the born like that and the year before it. Like that's, and I'm like, that means if you had well, been like if I had a been teenage teen dad, dad or something, yeah. Yeah. They could have been your kid. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. And so there's no concept of, you know, when, when 9-11 rolls around and all the old people are, you know, all the, all the admin is like, just there's 9-11, we remember 9-11 and stuff. It's like, they have no concept of that at all. That's so weird. Yeah. I mean, it was such a big cultural shift. I mean, I recently read uh, Dykes to Watch Out For by Alison Bechtel, and it was really fascinating to see because she starts out like, and I think in the Reagan era, and it was really fascinating to watch her go through like the Clinton administration and because, you know, she talks about politics a ton in her comics. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the 9-11 era was very interesting to watch, too. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of privacy, though, hey, 9-11's got a lot <laughs> to say about it. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> privacy, who needs it? Uh, basically, is the long story short. The, yeah. The, the main question you got to ask yourself privacy wise is, are you a terrorist? I mean, that's really the question everyone's asking. Do you like like terrorists? Do you agree with terrorists? Do you want to help terrorists? (laughs) And why are you concerned about your privacy? Like, come on. Pre-9-11, back in the heydays of the 90s. You could, you know, bring your knife on the plane. You could could go to the airport and buy the ticket that day. If you've seen the old movies, I assume that's how air travel was. Because I was a kid, (laughs) but still, it looks nice. I mean, Kyle told me a story that like his parents, like if he was going on a trip, he was going on a trip to Canada with his grandparents and they were in Washington. So it was right a short drive and they would write a note and just be like, Hey, this is my kid. He's going with his grandfather. Like that was it to cross the border. <laughs> <laughs> like no passports, just a note. <laughs> He's like, Here you go. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> nice. Uh, all right, so back in the 90s, there's actually a lot of movement in the privacy space. Uh, you had all these like watchdog orgs, you had these civil rights groups who were like pissed and like doing shit. And you had movement in that front. The the uh, FTC was actually discussing these proposals to assign control of all personal information to users by default. Of course, advertisers like lobbied the fuck out of this to create a self-regulating org instead. But, you know, we Come tried. On. We'll regulate it. Trust <laughs> us. Trust me. Um, but still, you had the Clinton administration was banning cookies from federal websites. And there were also several bills in Congress about regulating cookies. Um, the things that track you online. I'm sure you guys know this by now because you have to say yes on all of them now. And it drives me insane. Because they have such different like varieties of buttons for it it's like reject all which is easy i mean you know Mm -hmm. some of them make it easier they're like no fuck you some of you have to like click through to Mm -hmm. say which ones you want to and i'm just like i don't fucking have time for this i guess i will hit accept right now yeah (laughs) just what they want you to do that's dark design right there yeah it's like accept all or manage settings i'm like do i want to manage the settings currently (laughs) no i want to go do a thing like I can guarantee you their UX team had so many conversations of like, how do we discourage? The good guys have three. They have accept all, reject all, or like reject mm-hmm. unnecessary or something, and then manage. I'm like, oh, fuck yeah. Reject every, Thank you. everything but what I need. Well, here's the thing. I wonder what, what they think you I don't, need. I don't care. Again, you guys know <laughs> I'm a card carrying. They gave me a card. They only make, you know, custom made cards, but card carrying communist we should make cards for our shop that's fine yes 
I would gladly throw a bomb at any government official if I thought I could get away with it. I don't think I can, but I would. You know, you guys suck, but. Oh, my gosh. You know. Dave and Dan are definitely writing writing that one down. He said he would. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I also would probably have more qualms about it and be like, no, but there's a person. (laughs) I don't. Yeah. I don't think you could do it. Yeah. Anyway. So that was the environment we were in, and then 9-11 happened. And as we know, our good friend, the Patriot Act, stepped up to totally save us from terrorism and also maybe spy on us like a bunch. Christine, <laughs> if, you're, if you're not with us, then you're with the terrorists. Thank you, Anakin, from episode three. <laughs> Uh, Europe also followed this trend. They were passing legislation to expand the powers of intelligence and law enforcement agencies across the globe. Uh, And the U.S. policy on this was, hey, what if we were like Google, but for terrorism? (laughs) This gets wild. So the CIA opens a venture firm in Silicon Valley in QTEL, which sounds like a bad guy in RoboCop. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like... A dude in the government heard about the tech industry and said, oh, I'm going to make a tech, or I don't call it NQTEL. <laughs> they went nuts, throwing around money like it's the 1980s. They are training analysts like crazy. They're starting up data mining projects, and they start working with Google. They award a $2 million contract for Google to create a, quote, search appliance capable of searching 15 million documents in 24 languages. And Google did that. And then the next year was like, we'll do it for free. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, InQtel is just the CIA? InQtel is just the CIA. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Google also created an Intellipedia, which was an intranet for the CIA and other agencies to share information. So one of the things with 9-11 is, you know, people were really upset that like people... You know, there were pieces of the puzzle out there and people didn't put them together. And mm-hmm. so they're like, we need to share things across different orgs. So yeah. that was another big push here. They also bought and invested in a startup called Keyhole, a satellite mapping company, and a whole bunch of other like startups like that. Um, there's one called IC Reach, which is a search tool conceived of by a general to analyze and share huge amounts of metadata across agencies to reveal things like social networks, patterns of life, habits and predicting future behavior so it's like super cool things that i definitely want the government to know about me yeah look well, you know <laughs> neither of us suffered ill consequences of this but there's definitely i mean a reason why the united states categorizes all males over the age of 18 who were killed in drone strikes as enemy combatants because Jesus. too often the metadata uh, you know, that said, oh, well, you were tied in this particular way. You had these connections and whatever from this fucking thing uh, ended up that somebody was at somebody's wedding or what have you and got blown to fucking smithereens in Pakistan uh, Jesus. because of that. And, you know, and then they can get Obama come out and say, you know, I agonize about every single drone strike that I authorize, you know, but I try to make sure everything's clean and we don't have any... uh you know, any collateral damage. And, you know, he can go out and say that stuff because enemy combatants. Because if they were tied in this way, then they're obviously guilty in some way. Yeah. And and with this kind of location tracking, they can learn really specific habits and patterns about where you go every day. And, like, <laughs> you know, companies can cl- claim to anonymize data all they want, but it's, like, really fucking easy. All you need is, like, 
I think name, like sex assigned at birth and zip code and like, you got them. Like you can find out who it is. <laughs> and this continues today. You have counterterrorism collaboration between big companies and, and uh, countries across the world, uh, tracking using smartphones and all this stuff to identify and monitor groups. Obviously, we've heard all the stories about police using data to identify suspects. There's also Geofedia, a startup that tracks the location of activists and union organizers, giving them, quote, threat scores from analyzing their social media. They then sell sell this information to law enforcement. So cool, cool app you got there. <laughs> yeah, we, we would encourage you in a non-official capacity, because we couldn't encourage you to run afoul of law enforcement in any way. This would be bad, don't, you know, mm, no, no, back no. to blue or some bullshit, but... Uh, I I would just say that Eugene Debs would have a pretty high score on that. You know, I would just say that that Fred Hampton would have a pretty high score on that. People who you should If you don't have a link on Geofedia, what are you even doing? come on. Get yourself on there. Get yourself a high score. I mean, you want to be able to put your initials on there. high score. Like, come on. First, first EV. Top result. Yeah, EVD, Eugene Victor Debs. You know, Fred, I don't actually know Fred Hampton's middle name if he had one, but Fred Hampton would be up there. I mean, your idols would be up there. Get up there. Come on. Get on the homepage. Yeah. If they're not afraid of you, what are you doing? Honestly. And intelligence agencies were using basically the lawlessness applied to the private sector for their own gain here. Uh, for example, you know, the Supreme Court hasn't really imposed privacy restrictions on business records. So things like third party information or email. And so the intelligence agencies were like, that's fucking sick. Now we can sidestep that process too and get all this information on our own. <laughs> that should be fine. And that should be fine. I, because emails are not protected, I can just go ask any company for their emails. <laughs> <laughs> Some more strategies for getting away with it. Uh, One is the election process. Uh, We all know the Obama campaign was very famous for their approach to social media. Uh, And that is because the CEO of Google got real cozy with them. (laughs) (laughs) He was like on their team, uh, on their electoral team. He was leading their data strategies, redrawing electoral maps on the fly. You know, they were, they were bragging, some of the consultants were bragging that they knew who people were going to vote for before they even decided. What was it, Schmitty, you said? Schmidt. Yeah, all right. Schmitty, that's what I'll call Schmitty. Oh, it was sh- shitty Schmitty. Shitty Schmitty. <laughs> him, and, him and Axelrod were bros, apparently. I would not be surprised because, like, the amount of connections between the Obama administration and Google is insane. Uh, they also did the 2012 campaign where they, you know, were able to pinpoint single voters to figure out who to persuade. <laughs> and once they got into office, like I think Obama did his first press conference with Schmidt, like next to him. <laughs> Jesus. And, you know, people saw it as like, oh, he's the modern cool internet president. But like, in reality, this was just regulatory capture. By 2016, 197 people moved from the government into Google and 61 went from Google to the government. Out of these, 22 White House officials went to work for Google and 31 Google execs joined federal advisory boards with direct relevance to tech regulations. So they just bought their way into the government. Christine, this is infuriating. It's infuriating <laughs> because one of, so, okay, this is infuriating because I was an Obama 
I know. I was an Obama Listen, kid. I volunteered for that man. <laughs> I thought this was cool. I thought he was cool. I was making phone calls at like 16. <laughs> and old old hippie types would be like, come on, he's a neoliberal. He's, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. We didn't believe it. It's infuriating because Obama made a smart person pitch. So he made a pitch to people and said, look, your government is corrupt. You have people... You know, who are regulating at the FDA. You have people who are regulating in in these various government agencies. And he said in this pitch, there's a revolving door regulatory capture between these agencies and the agencies and, and, and the firms that they regulate. Now, he never mentioned Google or anything like that, but like he <laughs> was talking about these other ones. And I was he like, built them a door and held it open. And I was like, fuck, yeah, that's super fucked up like yeah we shouldn't have the, you know and and he was like yeah we can't you know in in my in my administration we're gonna ban lobbyists you know we're not we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> yeah, we're gonna cute. put a federal ban on people in in lobbying organizations coming in my administration or in my administration going to lobbyists you know he, he that that was a, that was a thing and then, <laughs> but like he neglected to mention that he was going to like bend over for google <laughs> yeah like put in an exemption for the industry that he liked <laughs> let them the do one the that thing. won him an election it's like just fucking <laughs> just i mean the guy was lying in so many ways but that's just like a, a blatant one that he ran on and tried mm-hmm. to make people feel smart for understanding and then he's just like yeah but here <laughs> but this one helps me get get the seat so yeah. fuck you guys <laughs> yeah and speaking of lobbying google is doing that too uh they spent in 2014, over $17 million. At this point, nearly twice as much as Facebook, though I believe they have since stepped up their game. Uh, but they're just fending off tons of privacy legislation. They also infiltrated academia. Uh, Google funded the George Mason University's Law and Economic Center, a free market-oriented academic center, and secretly pushed for panelists with a pro-Google attitude yeah. and uh, provided funding for people basically to write pro-Google law papers. Uh, in many cases, weighing in before publication, uh, they claimed this was not a quid pro quo. But in 2017, one guy wrote a statement that was praising the EU for fining Google on antitrust laws. And the director of the foundation, pressured by Shitty Schmitty, fired this guy and his researchers. So, Cool. <laughs> Cool Google Academia Farm you have there. Yeah. <laughs> Google is great. So. <laughs> Let Google do whatever they want. That's my new law. What do you guys think? <laughs> my research says Google. The best. <laughs> so Zuboff outlines, you know, we've looked at lots of techniques here, but she outlines four main techniques for this, this takeover of rights. One is incursion. Getting this data mining stuff everywhere. Push through lawsuits with your vast amount of money, time, and resources. Stall, stall, stall. Just pay your fucking, their fleet of lawyers, which mm-hmm. is bigger than the ones that live in your house. And just just run it through. My guys, I, I just, I don't want the slander to just go out there. I mean, my guys, are pretty, they're, they're pretty tough. It's, and they work <laughs> hard. I mean, they, they, you know, in football terms, they definitely outkick their coverage. I mean, they're, mm. they really play beyond their means. I'm sure they're, they're scrappy. Okay, they <laughs> they were card. Oh, Dave and Dan, rest assured, I have a fucking fleet of lawyers here. You never see them coming and going underground tunnels. They're, they're professionals. Mm-hmm. Right? They've got a whole sub basement. Yeah. <laughs> the second technique is habituation. Because the law moves so slowly, 
people get used to it. And there's a lot of helplessness involved in that of what the fuck am I going to do about it? And then when things change, it's pretty easy to be like, no, things, this is the law, you know, and you can, you can kind of bully people in a, in a sense of like, they don't really know the law unless again, they have hired such a (laughs) impressive fleet of lawyers as I've got. I mean, your bill for lawyer chow though has to be through the roof. Lawyer chow you know, here's a here's a thanks Brandon moment. But lawyer chow, really, the price has gone through the roof. I mean, you know, inflation <laughs> is just. And they only eat the wet food. Oh, try to feed them dry. You know, they they just <laughs> they throw it back at you. Yeah, you know, but they put the put the wet food out there. They flick their tie up and go go right to town. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> uh, let's see. The third method is adapt. So every once in a while, capitulate to a very small demand that doesn't mean anything. And finally, redirection. Create new rhetoric so it seems like you're totally into the privacy thing. No, for real this time, I promise we're going to do it. Then don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's funny. So let's look at a case study. Uh, And this is Google Street View. Okay, we're all familiar with this. You drop the pin, you look around. Mm -hmm. Street View. How innocuous. I mean, it was not seen as innocuous, which I didn't know. I did not know any of this kind of background info. So it's 2007. Google's like, we're going to map everything. Let's fucking do it. <laughs> yeah. And so it goes around in, in the street view cars. I don't know if young people even remember that those exist or if they still exist. Probably. Well, they still, I mean, they, they do it like they did last they update. year. And yeah. They claim, oh, it's a really easy process to get your image removed if your face happens to be captured on camera. Now, the VP of Google Maps, a man named John Hank, maybe Hanky, I'm not sure, ends with an E. Uh, He was previously behind Keyhole, that CIA-funded satellite mapping company. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, cool guy. Should be fine. He dismisses the backlash around Google Street View. He's like, that's authoritarian. This is anti-freedom of expression. Like, let us do our thing, right? Uh, Because Mm -hmm. there was pushback. In 2009, the residents of an English village of Broughton, Broughton, maybe, not sure, uh, spells like brought and then O-N. Okay. I don't know how to pronounce that. I have no idea. Every time I think I understand British English, they throw something weird at me. Uh, But they block a street view car with their bodies. (laughs) They're just like, fuck you. You're not coming into our town. Nice. (laughs) It's incredible. Uh, And you get tons of complaints coming in from the UK about getting their images removed. They're like, hey, my fucking face is on the internet and I didn't consent to this. Can you like take it down? Again, this this Hank guy's like, oh, it's it's good for the economy and it gives people (laughs) more information so they can make better choices. Like, what the fuck are you complaining about? But the complaints just keep rolling in. Uh, You have the German Federal Commission for Data Protection found that Street View cars were secretly collecting personal data from private Wi-Fi networks. Google's like, no, no, no. We're just getting the network names and the router info, not not anything sent over the network. (laughs) What? Nope. They were totally getting things sent over the network. Oh. Emails, URLs, passwords, names, porn habits, audio files, medical info. What the fuck were they doing with that? Could they, were they I selling that? I mean, they have to be, right? You would imagine. That's a lot. That's, That's a lot. <laughs> they could find out what you're fucking liking to. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone's pissed, right? You have a slew of lawsuits and fines across the EU and in the US. And Google's like, no, 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 no. This is just one guy. <laughs> 
<laughs> they try to pin it on one man. Like, wait, Even though, one Google like Maps driver? One developer. Okay. The rogue developer. He was like, they, I'm going to fucking get term. all the wank in the habits. <laughs> yeah, I'm a nasty man. I want to see what people are into <laughs> these days. And also their photos and videos and location and everything. Credit card or credit info. Like, oh, it's insane. Phone numbers. Like somehow he came up with, let's get <laughs> yeah. all this shit. Yeah. <laughs> so they blame it on this one guy. But the evidence shows that he had like kept his superiors in the loop. Like there were emails of him like talking back and forth with them, showing them his code and they signed off on it. So like definitely a lie. <laughs> FCC was like, okay, can you like give us the information about this so like we can move on with this suit and everything. And Google basically just stalled, ignored, sent incomplete and redacted information and overall claimed that the the review was burdensome. <laughs> so classic CIA tactics. I mean they, they just they just <laughs> pretended to be the CIA. Essentially like this is too hard. I can't do it. <laughs> we also lost half of the evidence you're asking us Oops. to turn over. Sorry. Oops, it went away. I deleted it. Oh, the no. The quarter of what we're going to send you also has, like, black bars over it. I don't know where that came from, but you can't eh, see Don't that worry part. about it. <laughs> so, eventually, Google's lawyers weasel their way out of, a, out of this with a decades-old wiretap law, and they only get fined for fucking 25K, which is chump change for them. <laughs> Damn. An additional group of attorneys general from 38 states also failed in their court case, settling for $7 million and Google promising to implement aggressive self-policing. Okay, fucking yeah. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, of course, that remember the, the last few steps of, of the process, pretend to apologize. So you have their, their senior vice president of engineering and research making a blog post saying, oh, this is just a single error and we work hard to earn your trust and, you know, they, they were pledging reform. And in some ways they did a little bit. They would lower cameras so they wouldn't go over fences, which is the thing they were doing. <laughs> Damn, I got to see if they went over my fence. I know, right? They're blurring faces and license plates. But, you know, people were still going after them. Like you still had lots of fines. You had lots of bans in different countries. And the conclusion of this case which I think is very telling, is that despite all these promises to change, Google didn't, and they fundamentally can't because they need that data. It's currently in 100 countries, and they doubled down on mapping. Uh, they started getting tourist boards to get people in their towns to use backpack cameras to collect views that they couldn't capture. They started mapping the inside of buildings and using this as a marketing tool for businesses to give customers like more insight into their business. And you may say, why are they doing this? What the, why is mapping so important? Uh, why are they so desperate for this data? I mean, obviously we talked about the initial formula, and, and that's really what they're trying to capitalize on is moving from just prediction products of I can now tell what you're going to buy to pushing people to buy things, trying to herd them into certain behaviors with using that data saying, I know you're going to go for a run. And after your run, you're going to be like feeling that runner's high, you're gonna get the endorphins. And this is the perfect time to send you an ad for new running shoes. Yeah. And not necessarily doing that yourself, but selling the opportunity to do that to some other company. Yes. Yeah. So they they, they only barely got over my fence. So if you you know you're familiar <laughs> with my it. back porch or whatever, mm -hmm. so they can see my grill and the top of my like 
reclining chair back there, you know, and, and okay, okay. kind of basically to that level so they can see, you know, they can't see like your feet on standing on that back porch or whatever, but they <laughs> can see pretty much everything picks. else. I'm not there. <laughs> so that's good, I guess. That's good. Another good thing is that, you know, in, in June of 2022, I'd recently ish enough mowed my yard so it looks nice it looks good <laughs> that's important that's important i'm sure mine looks like shit if anything my car looks like shit so <laughs> yeah so at least there's that but other than that yeah this they got they got a pretty good view of it but uh that's i mean that's the thing right is is i mean google's not really running the ads themselves the tech companies are not really running the ad themselves but they get to sell some executive on we know these people better than they know themselves, better than you know them. We can generate buys that your people would only dream of, basically. That we, we can we can essentially mind read them and get you get you where you need to be. Yes. The goal is to get more and more accurate predictions because even a small increase in that accuracy results in like huge revenue. Because it only has to be accurate and 10% of people and blam because you're everywhere. Well, that was the big revelation. Instead of just pumping out your ads to everyone, you would then find the person most likely to buy it. Okay. Yeah. The opposite of kind of what is interesting is like, not just we're everywhere. So it's going to stick, but like we're, we have been <laughs> we're everywhere. At the right person at the right time. Yeah. We've been, we, we've, we've heard from everybody Lots of them aren't going to go for this, but these fucking chumps will. Yeah. I mean, you've talked about it with friends all the time. Like how many creepy ass specific ads you get. Like that's not an accident. <laughs> so you're saying the creepier thing is not that they're listening to you on your phone, but that they have developed a profile of you from all the different things you've agreed upon. The tech companies have sold your stuff back and forth enough to understand you so much that they don't even need to listen to you on your microphone and they just, they can tell based on your other activities. You think, oh, I didn't Google this or whatever. I just said this to my friend, but they somehow know that I'm talking about this thing because of that tech profile they built of me. Yeah. I mean, friends are a huge part of it. If your friend looks something up, the algorithm will think, well, you might be interested in this too. So like, let me show an ad to you. Because you shared like the same Wi-Fi or something as you, them. Yeah, you share the same Wi-Fi. You have similar likes and dislikes. Like they're able to categorize people into really specific things down to like sexual orientation and political views, like all kinds of data that becomes so hyper-specific. And we'll get into some of like the emotional and psychological aspects too that they have on you, which is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just able to pinpoint with such accuracy that they're almost guaranteed a click, if not a purchase, at least a click. I have lots of other nasty stories here, but I think I'm just going to pick my favorite. Okay. Which is from Verizon. <laughs> so Verizon wanted to tackle a huge problem, a problem for them that they were seeing in the tech industry, which is, well, how do we track people across devices? Okay. They have a phone, but like, what are they doing on their computer? Exactly. Okay. That's what they wanted to do. So they quietly launched in 2012, a hidden and undeletable tracking number called a precision ID to each Verizon user. This could not be turned off or evaded with incognito mode. Because you just didn't know it was there in the first place. And it was that just, too. Boom. 
The idea is broadcast to every unencrypted website the user visits, allowing third-party sites to create these deep user profiles of their web behavior without their consent. Hilariously, Google protested this. They said, this is bullshit. This is mostly so they could get rid of the competition. <laughs> they were just <laughs> mad they didn't do it first. Yeah. They're like, I don't like that this guy got more data than me. Not cool. These assholes. <laughs> The FCC steps in, as does the Senate. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tech experts at the Senate. Totally, totally. And Verizon's like, oh, man, I'm sorry. We'll totally get rid of that program. Uh, but what they actually did is they bought AOL. <laughs> and what they did with that is they basically just moved the bullshit over to the AOL side of the company, saying, well, that's not us doing it. It's somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> and so in 2016, the FCC's like, okay, hold on. Internet service providers can't just like do this shit, okay? Like we're going to put some privacy guidelines in there. You can still collect data to enhance security and and services, but like other things have to be opt-in consent. Yeah. A whole bunch of companies are pushing back like crazy, all, all these cable and internet companies, but the vote passes. And so in response, Verizon buys Yahoo. Oh. <laughs> the quote from the book, which is one of my favorite quotes is, if a law was coming to its town, it would simply buy a new town without a sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what they do so many times. It's insane. They're just like, I can't do that here. Cool. Can I do it here Damn. instead? <laughs> yeah. And this happens on, a, on, a, on this level of just buying a new company. It also happens on a global level, which we'll see next week. A lot of times, really bad practices will start in poorer countries where people don't have options. Um, privacy becomes a luxury good of you want a loan, you're gonna have to give mm -hmm. us all this information on you. There's another parallel of uh, what you're what you call extrajudicial rendition. So another term you hear for this is black sites. It's the same concept. The law, you know, the things you want to do say to a suspect someone you think may have done some terrorism or done something against the United States interests or whatever you don't like them you want to figure out who's behind what they're doing what have you there's a lot of laws in the United States that restrict what you can do to them let's say you take them to a place you, that's secret unknown to the press unknown to the general public, it's what you would call a black site, say in Syria, a cooperative government or wherever, you know, wherever it is, you may want to relocate them again. You're moving, from, moving from the town with the laws to, you know, the town without a sheriff. You just do your thing, you know, and you, yeah, you can actually, the sad fact of the matter in that, in that particular parallel is you can do that within the United States too. If you can buy off the right people is you can have fucking black sites in Chicago mm -hmm. and shit like that too. But mm -hmm. that's the thing is this, you know, this government, the liberals like to give us all this stuff about, Oh, law and order and everything else. But <laughs> yeah. law and order sometimes, <laughs> unless they disagree with the law. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's common on on so many levels of, you know, think about sweatshop conditions in, in other countries. Think about manifest destiny of America. How much mm -hmm. shit could you get out of there, get, get away with over there, you know, exploiting Chinese workers to build the railroads? Because guess what? There's not any yeah. fucking laws protecting them. Well, I mean, them. now you can just, you know, 
do a genocide. You can run an apartheid state and we're still going to fucking sell mm-hmm. you everything we can. And we're going to drum up support for you in our country as much as we can, because you're a fucking ally. It's real. Here you go. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is. I think the thing I took away from this, like, you know, there's that, that phrase that I think is attributed to Zuckerberg of, of move mm-hmm. fast and break things. And I think that is so apt, but the thing that really makes that work is have a fuck ton of money so that you can afford to do that. I mean, there are so many instances in in this book of companies stalling and just using their teams and teams of lawyers to just like fucking get away with whatever they want because they have the capital that lets them do that. And that's what all companies do is they have enough capital that they can, they can wait out a pandemic. They can wait out a strike. They can wait out anything and they can still get away with whatever it is they're trying to get away with. On that strike front though, it does seem like they're Mm. not going to be able to wait out the UAW. I know. I heard about this. They're going to successfully actually get everything, you know, or most of what they want from the big three. So, Fucking shout out to them, yeah, comrades yeah. in arms. Good job. Yeah. Hey, I guess since this is a two-parter, I can get into my other nasty stories. Do you want some uh, more nasty yeah. stories? I, mean, I love nasty stories. <laughs> That's what I have it <laughs> called in, in the doc. My notes are stupid. Okay. Uh, do you yeah, have Google Glass and this. the glass holes? <laughs> <laughs> so if you weren't around for some reason, uh, this was <laughs> for what? For some reason, 20... you hadn't like been born you early just here. <laughs> well, what was Google Glass? Like uh, or something? I don't know. 2013, see. that's my guess. Google Glass, when was it? Hell yeah. It was 2013, you're right. Prototype, nice. April 15th, 2013. Good job. <laughs> Time wizard. That's what we call it when, when you ask what time it is like and the other person the guesses. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you if you get it at the minute, you're a time wizard. And if you get yeah. close, you're like a time apprentice. Like we have different <laughs> levels. <laughs> it's a fun game to play with your spouse. <laughs> anyway. Um, all right, Google Glass. So if you don't remember, back in 2013, apparently, uh, there were these fucking glasses that were, you know, you could live stream whenever the fuck you wanted. Uh, you could take pictures. You could... Uh, you know, have your location on, you had audio, you had video, uh, all on this purposefully discreet. It's like package. the link, but not that discreet. It's like still glasses. Yeah. 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 It's not embedded in your head <laughs> yet. And people freaked out because they're like, Hey, probably mostly men who developed this. I don't super want a guy with a camera <laughs> all the time. <laughs> You know, like that sounds bad. He could record like just me anything. being a human and it's not o- cool. you know, him ogling me like. <laughs> yeah, like that's not OK. And, you know, there's tons and tons of reasons why you don't want someone filming you all the time. I think it's really fascinating, like culturally, how we have accepted that that's a thing mm-hmm. that you can just be filmed whenever. So that's fucked up. Google characterized the backlash as a, quote, aversion <laughs> to innovation, according to co-founder Sergey Brin. Mm-hmm. Basically, you guys need to get with the fucking times. <laughs> and without admitting any wrongdoing, they quietly shelved glass, claiming they are working on improving the design. And they realized, hey, people aren't ready for this. And so you know where they introduced it back into the I didn't world? know they did. It's called the Glass Enterprise Edition. And unlike <laughs> Star Trek Enterprise... 
this was reintroduced to the workplace, somewhere where you can't say no unless you're going to go get another fucking God, no, job. They just gave them to the bosses. They just gave them to like companies to Whoa. like monitor their fucking employees. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's nasty. We're going to see lots more of that kind of shit in part two. There's so many nasty stories about just like, let's spy yeah, on our, it's crazy, our employees. That's crazy, but it makes total sense. I mean, yeah, yeah. you have a captive People population. People who have to like, sign a different sort of contract of just like, it's not like a luxury one where they can just be like, no, that's fine. I just will live my life. Instead, it's like, no, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I just will fucking starve. Like. I'll just, I guess, try to find another yeah, job in this I economy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And finally, we have Facebook's like okay, button. Okay. I remember this one. Yeah. It's still <laughs> around, technically. Introduced in 2010. It does more than just tell them what you like. Like buttons, particularly on third-party websites. You know, you go to another site mm-hmm. and they have a like button at the bottom. Uh, they did other super cool things like... Installed cookies on your computer, whether or not you click the button, uh, whether or not you click the like button at all, yeah. they just would install cookies. Okay. <laughs> Tracks non Facebook members, continues to track users even after yeah. logging out. <laughs> I love this thing. It's so great. Facebook was like, no, 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 this is a glitch. Oops. I don't know how this happened. Do not look at my GCAL, though, because three days earlier, <laughs> they did sign a patent for tracking users across <laughs> web domains. Nothing to do with what <laughs> accidentally was happening. I didn't mean to do this, except I totally like found a way to do this. <laughs> so in 2011, the FTC forced Facebook to settle due to data leaks and forced them to update their privacy program. Uh, I think it was like an audited kind of situation of like, well, we're, we're going to come here every two mm-hmm. years, make sure you're doing your shit right. Uh, but Facebook didn't yeah. really give a shit. <laughs> In 2012, they started working on a new targeted ad method that mined personal information, uh, including scanning personal messages for links to third-party sites to sell to advertisers, basically. They're, they're doing this now, too. Like, if you're chatting with someone on Messenger and you mention a product, they will now have, like, a way to integrate mm-hmm. a Buy It Now button, <laughs> which is insane. Uh, that's, like, a little more modern than what this particular case was. But um, they were starting up that kind of stuff. And this program was announced with a few lines and a terms of service agreement with no opt-out policy. It was just policy. like, hey, here's what we're doing. Do you want to stop using Facebook? Or, do, or are you cool? Or are you chill? Yeah. Don't you want the Obama campaign I mean, like, to know how to target you? That's essentially what they always put forward, right? Or do they, or, or nowadays, or is, is there more of a middle ground of like, no, don't do that. But I still want to use the thing. I think now there is. It seems like more, is. like, uh, long, you know, in the earlier days, it was like, do you want to use this at all? Yes or no? You know, you have to do all the things. And now maybe there's like more of a middle ground of enough people are saying yes to where we can say, okay, fine, you can be a chump and we can not get your shit. You know, what I'd be really curious about is I think after reading this book, my question would be, how are they obfuscating Mm. their agreements? You know, when I say no, what am am I saying saying no to? to? Are they finding workarounds? Yes, like what what is still available for them to get? And 
the third party thing is one thing that really changed me of the idea of if you say yes to something, you're not just saying yes to Google, you're saying yes to like uh, millions of other companies that are connected to Google and can do God knows what with that data. So it's not a simple yes or no, and it never will be because it's, it's so fraught with, yeah. <laughs> with money and power. And so even if I went through and I click the ones that I think are only necessary and that I think that the app actually needs, I have no guarantee of how other people because are going to use that information. you're friends with dumbasses like me or someone else, right? <laughs> and so what they're banking on is you'll say no because, you know, you're just fucking, yeah, you're, you're, some, Privacy head. you're, you're a loser. <laughs> you're, you know, you're the anarchist, you're the Marxist, you're the losers. And they're never going to get you, but they're banking that they're going to, you know, they're going to get to you with your cool friends and they're going to be able to tie that to your data and get your stuff. You're still in the system. You're still in the association. Resistance graph. is You're futile. There. Or maybe this should be the topic of our next installment. <laughs> that is literally one of my <laughs> section titles for my notes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, okay. So this is actually going to be a two-parter because, I mean, this book was like 700 pages and I spent like several months reading it and I just, I don't want it all to, to get condensed. <laughs> so... Tune in next time. We're going to learn about a fun little thing called behavioral modification and how we are being funneled into certain actions and also all the the very specific ways that they are getting data on us, uh, including things like smart cities, biometrics, voice software, analyzing emotions, Uh, and lots of other nasty stories. So tune in for the nasty tech story hour. That should be great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. There's some, there's some real. And one of the things I think people should just remember (laughs) is what we talked about today. And what we're going to talk about is this, this, this stuff is all being piloted by the worst tech bros. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the people yeah. you can trust the least. <laughs> uh. Oh, yeah. Cool. So, yeah, next week, shooting the shit. And we'll All right. talk to you then. See ya. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon for five bucks a month. You get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up and coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff 
with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.